Don't just resist cynicism, says Maria Popova. Fight it actively in yourself and in those that you love. Cynicism, like all destruction, is easy and it's lazy. And I love what she says here because, and I've said this before, it takes very little effort to become bitter, to become cynical, to just deconstruct everything, to become apathetic, to be skeptical, to be cynical. You know what I'm talking about. Then she goes on and she says, oh, there is nothing more difficult and yet more gratifying in our society than living with sincere, active, constructive hope for the human spirit. This is the most potent antidote to cynicism and it is an act of courage and resistance today. She reminds us that you and I need hope to engage and fight injustice for the long haul. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. As Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Institute says, hope is your superpower. Don't let anybody or anything make you hopeless. Hope is the enemy of injustice. Hope is what will get you to stand up when people tell you to sit down. Hope. And church, I want to remind all of us that our hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Our hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 says, We remember before God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is and what he has done is ultimately what fuels us, ultimately what motivates us, and ultimately what anchors us. Amen? Amen. See, we're talking about justice because justice is core to the gospel. Let me be clear. We're not saved by doing justice or any other good works. We're saved, made right with the holy righteous God through faith by grace alone. It is an act of grace that comes as a gift. So we don't worship justice, church. We worship a just God. We don't worship justice. We worship a just God. Our love for God is what motivates, what enables, what prompts our love for our neighbors. Let me me just say say this up front. I'm a pastor. I'm not an expert on race or racism. Never pretended to be one, nor will I ever pretend to be one. I'm a pastor, and that means I talk about justice because I fundamentally believe that it's core to the gospel. I care about justice because I love Jesus, and he cares about justice. And that means, and let me be really clear, I want to be firm and yet gentle. That means that if you're a Christian, If you're a Christian and you want to talk about without Jesus, I'm not interested. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I will engage you in talking about justice and why it's prompted by Jesus. But if you're a Christian 
and you want to talk about justice apart from Jesus, I'm not interested. Why? Because there is no hope for true justice without Jesus. Matter of fact, if you're a Christian and want to talk about Jesus apart from Jesus, I'll point you to other people way smarter, way more educated, way more experienced than I am. My job as your pastor is to point you to what God says about justice, what Jesus says about justice, and learn from other experts other things about justice. But my job is to teach you God's heart, God's heart. Because justice is so broad and big, and because, let's be real here, in the world and even in the church, the, the word justice has so many different meanings. I want to spend this week, again, just to ground us, just to anchor us in what God says holistically from Genesis to Revelation about justice. And before we talk about Isaiah 58, which has been our anchoring passage, I want to point you to a passage that should be familiar to you if you've been coming to a new community. Because it's another passage that, again, grounds us in what justice is and the work of justice. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Starting verse 15. Paul says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, in him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and check this out, in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. See, behind the biblical concept of justice is the word shalom, that rich Hebrew word that means peace, wholeness, and completeness. It's a state of being in which all things hold together. That's why the rabbis refer to justice as nothing missing, nothing broken. Nothing missing, nothing broken. And as I've illustrated a thousand times, the rabbis used the illustration of shalom using a garment in which thousands of threads are rightly related to each other because they've, woven, they've been woven together under and, and over. They're interwoven, interconnected, interdependent. And the result is a garment that is strong, that is together so that nothing is missing, nothing is broken. There is peace, wholeness, universal flourishing, not just spiritually, but physically, socially, culturally, in every way. You see, when, when man decided to rebel and reject God's kingship, God's lordship, what happened is that things fell apart. Things unraveled. A chain reaction which, when our relationship with God fell apart, unraveled. Our relationship with each other fell apart, unraveled. And all of creation unraveled. So the most basic way to understand what justice is, is what? Making things come together. Making things right. That's why when you look at the Hebrew words for justice, as we did last week, you see why this 
is the case. The, one of the words for justice in Hebrew is the word mishpat. We talked about this last week. Over 200 times the word mishpat appears in the Old Testament. Mishpat literally means to treat people equitably. And treating people equitably, by the way, will involve systems and structures and institutions as we talk about, as we'll talk about. The other Hebrew word is righteousness or sadakah. Sadakah for righteousness. And it's not personal morality. It's not personal righteousness. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. In essence, it's about treating people, tzedakah, treating people as the image of God with God-given dignity and worth and value that they deserve. So check this out, church. When you put tzedakah, right relationships, and mishpat, justice, together, you get social justice. Social justice ain't some secular terminology that we've allowed to sort of be co-opted. Social justice is tadaka mishpat. It's a biblical terminology. Reclaim it. Restore it. Boldly proclaim it. When somebody says, I know what you're talking about, say to them, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Let me show you from Hebrew scriptures why it is a biblical terminology. I could do a whole sermon on that, but we need to go on. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church, that is Jesus. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he, that is Jesus, might have the supremacy. Church, let me ask you something. Who is the only one worthy of supremacy? Who is the only one worthy of supremacy? His name is Jesus. So can white supremacy and the gospel coexist? Come on now. Can white supremacy or any other kind of supremacy and the gospel coexist? Why do we fight white supremacy? Why do we confront white supremacy? It's not just a political issue. It's not just a social issue. We confront it because at the core, white supremacy is an idol. White supremacy is an evil that ultimately challenges the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me be really clear. Calling out white supremacy and confronting white supremacy is not a political social issue. It's not a Republican-Democrat issue. It's not a conservative-liberal issue. It is a lordship of Jesus Christ issue. White supremacy challenges the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Why? If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, he is not Lord what? At all. And please, church, don't be naive. We're not fighting against flesh and blood when we fight white supremacy. We're fighting against powers and principalities in the spiritual realm, Ephesians 6. White supremacy is an idolatry deeply rooted in spiritual evil. It's a principality in spiritual power. So if you think that you can fight white supremacy by educating people alone, just getting the right people in office alone, just networking in a fold, you are naive. The enemy would love to get us to think that we could fight this principality, this evil, this idol by education, by politics alone. If you're fighting against white supremacy as an injustice, are you praying? 
Are you praying? No, not just praying alone. I will never say we just pray alone, do nothing else. But are you praying? It's when we get down on our knees that God stretches his powerful right arm. Someday all white supremacists will bow down their knees to Jesus Christ as Lord. That is my motivation and my fuel that keeps me in justice work. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, all things, all things, not just us and God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. Reconciliation literally means to put back together so that nothing is missing, nothing is broken. Justice and reconciliation are intimately tied. Justice work is critical if there is to be biblical reconciliation. And the good news that Jesus Christ came proclaiming and demonstrating was that in him, the kingdom of God was at hand to reconcile all things. Is that good news? That is great news. So biblical justice, let's be clear. Reconciliation involves making individuals, yes, but communities and the entire cosmos whole by making things right, by putting things back together. Justice is about creating kingdom space in the here and now and giving witness to the ultimate just society that is to come. So every time we use our voice, every time we use our influence to get in the way of injustice, whether it be racial injustice or human trafficking or economic exploitation or human rights abuses, we're providing a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. come a little bit of heaven right here on earth. <sighs> this is such a, a gospel issue. Do you get that? Do you get that? So our anchoring passage as it began last week is Isaiah 58. And what I want to do is I want to read that passage again and we're going to delve deeper into what living justly entails. If you have not listened to last week's sermon, I almost, I almost want to go listen to that before you listen to today's sermon because last week was such incredibly important foundational sermon. Isaiah 58.1, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? As I mentioned last week, their worship observances is perfect. But God's not answering their prayers. Why? On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit your workers. Verse 4, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Verse 5, is not this the kind of fast I've chosen only for a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Remember what God does here. He is radically redefining worship. Worship. It's our whole life response to God. 
both personal and corporate to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. That is biblical worship. That means if what we do in here, what we sing about in here, what we learn about in here, that means if what you learn about in your private devotion at home, in your scripture reading at home, in your private time at home, if what we do in there doesn't result in us living out, out there, who God is and what he has done, then it's not true worship. When we exit these doors, when we leave our homes, our worship continues. What we do in here, what we do in our private devotions should fill the streets out there. If we truly encounter the God of the Bible and worship, it has to. It must affect the way we live. In verse 6, he goes on. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Here's biblical worship. To loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. Set the oppressed free. Break every yoke is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter and when you see the naked clothe them and don't turn away don't turn away don't turn away from your own flesh and blood the big overarching theme that we came around last week was living justly is an act of worship it's about living justly, not just doing justice or seeking justice, which is a vital component of living justly. Church, it's about our whole life response. That means doing justice is not just about protesting and marching, although there are critical components of doing justice. It also involves how you spend your money. It also involves who you date. Justice also involves why you choose the jobs you choose. Justice also involves how you vote, the candidates you vote for. Justice involves all the neighborhoods you choose to live in. Hello, somebody. Justice involves how you treat your employees. It's about a whole lifestyle that is a response to who God is. And just like we can't extract love from God's character, holiness from God's character, goodness from God's character, God says, you can't extract justice from my character because I'm a God who loves justice. Living justly is an act of worship. But this passage also gives us some other critical insights about living justly. What are those? Living justly is also caring for the most vulnerable. Living justly is caring for the most vulnerable. Isaiah mentions in verse 6, the oppressed, the hungry, the poor, the immigrant, and the naked. Do you know that it's striking when you read the Old Testament, and boy, I hope you do. When you read the Old Testament, do you know how often God identifies himself as the defender of the most vulnerable among us? Matter of fact, if you look at every place in the Old Testament where word justice is used, you will see several classes of people that continue to come up. Mishpat describes taking up and care and the cause of the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, the poor, the oppressed. The group that have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. Now remember, 
Scriptures written in agrarian societies. In agrarian societies, these four people, the groups of people, had absolutely no social power. They lived in subsistence level and were only dazed from starvation if there was a famine, invasion, or any other kind of social unrest. Now, don't miss the significance of this. When people ask me, when I go speak at different places, uh, how do you want us to introduce you? Here's what I say to them. I go, well, you could say um, his name is Peter Hong, and he is the pastor of New Community Covenant Church, married to Jenny, and three beautiful kids, Parker, Sophie, and Noah. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a lot of other things, but that's the primary thing I do in public. So think about this, church. Think about this. Think about how powerful and significant it is that God says, you want to know how I can be introduced? I am the defender. I am the advocate for the oppressed. Yeah, but you're all the, yes, but I am the defender for the poor, the oppressed, the orphans, the widows, the marginalized. Those for whom, unless I spoke up, I stood with and advocated for, they would have no voice, they would have no power. I am their God. Yeah. That's who I am. Zechariah 7, 9. And there's so many passages that I could point to. Zechariah 7, 9. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Verse 10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. There it is, the quartet of the vulnerable again. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoa, 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 whoa God, whoa, whoa. but, but, but we're, we're, we're mistreating them. We're not mistreating you. No, 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 no. When you mistreat them, you mistreat me. But whoever is kind to the needy, they honor God. How much more clearly can God say, I am identifying with the poor? And by the way, say God over and over again says, I identify with the poor, not the rich. Why? Because God doesn't love the rich? Oh, no. God loves the rich. But it's because God cares about equity. Remember we talked about that last week? Difference between equality and equity. The reason why God says I care about the poor and not the rich is because the rich already have people, systems, and structures that are set up to favor them, to speak for them, to stand up for them. God says I care about the poor. Because nobody else is standing up for them. Nobody else is advocating for them. Nobody else is standing up for them. Do you know how radical this was in that culture? You and I are talking about a culture in which gods were always identified with the people at the top. It was understood that people at the top were there because God put them there. And to oppose the people at the top were to oppose the people, well, to oppose, to oppose the gods. And God has the audacity to come and say, what? I identify not with the people at the top, but the people at the bottom. A radical, revolutionary vision of God this was. And in case you're going, but that's the Old Testament, right? Jesus then comes along. And in one of the most 
in a good way, disturbing passages in all the New Testament. He says what? Matthew 25. Starting in verse 34, in the last, the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. But Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Let the gravity of this, because I know this passage is familiar, so all of you, you just kind of, you're accustomed to hearing. Let the gravity of what Jesus says here sit with you. In the last days, the perfect judge of all justice will come. The judge of the universe is going to look at all the people who say that they're believers, say the right things, lip service. And he says, I'm going to separate those who gave mere lip service to those whose faith was real. And how will the, how will the judge know? What is the evidence? Sit with this. What is the evidence? Worship attendance? What is the evidence of genuine faith? Personal morality? The evidence, Jesus says, is I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me something to drink. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and you didn't care for me. I was in prison and you didn't come visit me. Jesus says, I am one of the least of these. I am the people that you least want to help. I am them. And when you and I failed to do to the least of these, he says, you failed to do unto me. The way you treat the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized shows the reality. Shows the reality of your relationship with me. Which brings me to the second sermon point, which is living justly authenticates our faith. Come on, somebody. Living justly authenticates our faith. Speaking up for, defending, taking up the care, concern, and cause of the most vulnerable among us authenticates real faith and real connection to God. These are not my words. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 16. By their fruit, you will recognize them. 
You will know a tree from its fruit. In other words, you will show evidence where you and I are rooted if you produce fruit that is consistent with that tree. So question, church, how can you and I say that we are rooted in God who says, I love justice, I am the defender of the oppressed, marginalized, and the poor, and not have a deep social conscience and a life and service poured out to the least of these. This is at the end of the day what biblical faith is, Jesus says. This is what you and I, when we said, I will follow you, Jesus, is one we committed to. And let me just also say, if there are those of you that are listening that are saying, I'm not a Christian, and I reject Christianity, do you realize that this is at the heart of what it is that we believe? The Apostle James, by the way, the book of James is full of this. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that our Godfather accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Over and over and over again, the New Testament says, a life and heart dedicated to justice is the inevitable sign of real faith, which gets me to this. I think most of us love justice until there's a personal cost. I think most of us, as one of my friends loves to say, we're more in love with the idea of justice more than justice itself. I think we love the idea of changing the world more than actually changing the world, church. Why do I say that? Because most of us, when there is a cost, and I'm going to tell you something, when you live justly, there is always a cost. For some of you, this may cost your relationships. For some of you, this may cost your career. And for some of us, it may cost us financially. How serious are you about wanting to live justly? Because as we'll see, continue throughout the series, there is no living justly without cost. Which gets me to the next sermon point. Living justly doesn't just authenticate our faith, it moves us beyond charity. I need you to hear this. Why is injustice called a yoke? Verse 6, untie cords of the yoke. Break every yoke. It's because it's describing group of people under the oppressive weight of unjust structures and systems. That's why it's not enough to just do charity work. You and I have to deal with social structures. And this is where a lot of evangelical Christians go, I'm out. I'm out. I can do charity, but I'm out when you start talking about systems. And I'm telling you right now, living justly means we have to deal with systems and structures. We have to change the school system. We have to change the criminal justice system, the economic system, the political system. Systemic racism is less about hoods and torches and crosses burning. It's daily decisions made by people who don't even think of themselves as racist. I love this quote. 
by Eduardo Bonilla Silva. The main problem nowadays is not folks with the hoods, but the folks dressed in suits. Charity might mean immediate needs, but justice is about power. It's not just teaching someone how to fish. It's making sure that that person has access to a place to fish and able to fish in clean, unpolluted waters. And when it comes to our systems, we are swimming in unclean, polluted waters. Listen, I'm going to just, because we don't have time, just walk you really quick and give you a snapshot of systemic racism that is at the core of every facet of our society. If you are, listen, let me say something. Please do some research and homework on your own. Don't let other people, don't be lazy and have other people just spoon feed you. Be motivated to learn this stuff on your own. Can I get an amen, somebody? So I'm just going to give you a snapshot. All the resources are out there if you choose, and that's where the problem is. If you choose to look, where's systemic injustice? Let me tell you the following. Look at wealth. White families represent 77% of the entire population, but they hold 90% of the national wealth. Black families, 2.6%. The recent Great Recession hit minority families particularly hard, and the wage gap that was already big is even further now. For every $100 white families earn in income, black families earn just $57.30. Check it out on your own. Employment. It's difficult to build wealth without employment. A black unemployment has been consistently twice that of white counterparts over the last 60 years, whether the economy is up or down. One example of why, job applicants with white-sounding names get called back about 50% more than applicants with black-sounding names, even when they have identical resumes. And by the way, there are people in our church who personally experience this. Criminal justice. Black Americans make up 13% of the entire population, but represent 40, 40% of the prison population. If a black person is, if a black person and a white person each commit a crime, a black person has a better chance of being arrested. And once they're arrested, black people are convicted 20 times more often than white people and typically see sentences 20% longer than those for whites who are convicted of similar or same crimes. Why is that important? Felony conviction means that in many states you can't vote. And more than 7.4% of the entire adult African-American population right now is disenfranchised. Can't vote. Compare that to 1.8% of the rest of the population. Housing, redlining. If you don't know what that is, I ain't going to spin food you, okay? Google it and learn for your own. Redlining, which was outlawed in the 60s, but it never went away. During the Great Recession, banks routinely, purposely guided black home buyers towards subprime loans. People of color are shown 18% fewer homes and 40% fewer rental units than white people. Black ownership is 42% compared to 72% for whites. Surveillance. If you, don't, if you don't know what it means to be surveilled, chances are because you're not black. More than half of young black Americans know someone, including themselves, who have been harassed by the police. Recent statistics show that black drivers are about 30% more likely than white drivers to be pulled over by police for no other reason but the fact that they're black. Healthcare. 
A 2012 study, 2012 study found that 67% of the doctors have unconscious racial biases when it comes to their black patients. Black Americans are far less, far more likely than whites than to, to, to lack access to emergency medical care, as we've seen during COVID-19. Hospitals, they go, tend to be less well-funded, staffed by practitioners with less experience. And even black doctors, even black doctors face discrimination. They're far less likely than similarly credentialed white doctors' peers to receive government grants for research practice. And the example goes on and on and on. All of us are inescapably part of these unclean, polluted waters, whether we realize it or not, that prolong injustice in this world. And that means we all bear the weight of responsibility. Come on, somebody. What do we do? Here's where we start. Next sermon point, living justly begins with opening your eyes. Open your eyes. Why does God say in verse 7, when you see, when you see the oppressed, the hungry, the immigrant, don't turn away. Why does God say don't turn away? Because we would rather not see. We would rather not know. Because if we see and we know we're accountable, we have to do something about it. And it's way more comfortable. Let's just be honest. It's way more convenient. It's way less costly just to not see and just to not know. So when we're tempted to look away, if you want to live justly, you have to see the problem. You have to see the injustice, the inequity, and not look away. And I'm going to say something right here. If you are somebody who says, I have a choice on whether to look or not look, that is the ultimate example of privilege. We don't have to go somewhere else. We don't have to go over there to see injustice and equity. We have to just open our eyes. There's injustice in your workplaces. Not everyone has a seat at the table. There's injustice and equity in your school system, in your neighborhoods. We have to be able to open our eyes and see it. You and I have a choice. We have to choose to be willing to see and not look away. We have to choose to see those in the shadows, those being oppressed, those being weighed down by injustice. You have to choose to open your eyes every single day, not look away, and be a part of God's solution. But in order to see, we need to be proximate. It's not just a compassion problem, it's a proximity problem. It's not just that we don't care about the poor, it's that we don't know the poor. It's not that you and I don't care about racism. We're not in deep, intentional, ongoing, transformational, transformational relationships with people who have to deal with racism and injustice every single day. If you and I want to be an ally and live justly, we have to make a choice to be uncomfortable and place ourselves in difficult, uncomfortable places. I've said this a thousand times. I love your passion around justice, but if you pursue justice without relationships, you will turn people into projects. When you care about the people, you and I care about the situations that they're in. Because you and I cannot say that we love someone and not care about the policies that affect them. 
If what is hitting our black brothers and sisters is not hitting us emotionally, financially, spiritually, maybe we're not standing close enough. Justice work starts with us, church. It starts with us. It starts with you and me. Everyone thinks of changing the world, Leo Tolstoy says, but no one thinks of changing himself. Injustice often is not seen, injustice is not done because of sin and brokenness inside all of us. There's prejudice there, church. There's indifference in their church. There's pride in their church. There's entitlement in their church, in each and every one of us. And we need to pray, God, search me and know me, God. What is in my heart that's keeping me hardened? What is keeping me, what, keep, keep my heart that's keeping me indifferent? God, search me and know me, God. A life of love and justice starts here. It starts with dying to myself and crucifying myself on the cross so that I could begin to live anew in Christ. It starts with you and me. It starts with us. Pray for God to break your heart. Pray for God to break my heart. Ask God to soften our hearts and give us his heart for justice so that as we grow in Christ-likeness, we would engage our entire lives in living justly. Practically speaking, let me just leave you with a metaphor before I give you the ultimate motivation and power. I love this illustration. Before you jump in, here's what I need you and me to do. I need you to identify where you are. Before you act, I need you to identify where you are. I love this illustration that somebody used that says, systemic racism is like a moving walkway that you and I see in airports. Systemic racism and oppression in any way is a walkway. And there are four kinds of people on this walkway. The first person is the active perpetrator. That person is running as fast as they can along the walkway. And those people are easy to spot, right? The KKK, the Nazi, the hood. And the danger is you and I go, well, that's not me, and so I'm good. No, 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 there are three other kinds of people. The second type of people are those who are passively standing on the walkway, passively moving in its intended direction and benefiting. These folks say things like, the world is colorblind. These folks may say things like, yes, but we had a black president for eight years. Yes, but what about reverse racism? You're benefiting, but you're doing absolutely nothing. Facing in the direction and being carried along by oppressive and unjust systems. The third group of people, let me speak to you and me, is that group who've been awakened enough and you've turned around, but you're still being carried along the walkway. You may say, I read the right books, I listen to the right podcasts, and I read the right thinkers, but you're not actively anti-racist. You are not actively anti-systemic Racist. You are not actively opposing the forces that are carrying you and me and the rest of the world along. That is my greatest fear. My white brothers and sisters, you want to be a true ally. It's not enough that you turn around and say, I oppose racism. What are you and I doing to actively resist it and oppose it? Because yeah. the fourth group that we need to be in, 
are people who have not only turned around, but they are moving as fast as, as hard as they can in the opposite direction with all their might, with all intentionality, so that someday the oppositional force would turn the tide. That is what we need. Only massive oppositional force will turn the tide of the walkway and change the direction from oppression to equity. It's not enough to read the right books. It's not enough to pray the right prayers. It's not enough to attend a multi-ethnic church. Are you actively fighting, actively and intentionally moving in the other direction? St. Peter, what can one person do, though? Well, what can I possibly do? Here's the right question I need you to ask. Instead of saying, what can one person do? Let's ask, what can the one true God do with one person? Can I get an amen? What can the one true God of the universe do with one person? God changes the world through you and me. The same God who took the five loaves of bread and two fish, not much, and fed the multitudes, could take the same little thing that we have to offer in our hands, and our God can take that and multiply it in our work for justice. It's not about ability, but availability. All God asks is that we bring whatever we have, our positions, our possessions, and our potential that we've already been blessed with, and he compensates for it. Our great God does. For everything we need, as we wade in, he works in and through us. I want to leave you with Jesus. I know I've gone a little long, but I can't end without pointing you towards Jesus. Don't you dare go out there and say, I don't need Jesus. Jesus is what anchors us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. When the Old Testament says God identifies with the poor and the oppressed, not until you come to the New Testament do you see and fully grasp the degree to which God in Christ identified with us. In the incarnation and death of Jesus, we see God identifying with the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed, literally. He is born in a feeding trough. Creator God of the universe that holds all things together is born in a feeding trough. When his parents had him circumcised, they offered two pigeons, which was prescribed to the poorest of the poor. In the final days, he rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, stands his last evening in a borrowed room, and when he died, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. He dies naked and penniless. God only identified with the naked and the poor. He also identifies those who are denied justice. His entire trial and execution was a miscarriage of justice. He identifies with millions of nameless people who've been oppressed, wrongfully imprisoned, robbed of justice, tortured, and slaughtered. On Judgment Day, don't say to Jesus, when do we see you thirsty? When do we see you naked? When do we see you captive? The answer, on the cross. On the cross. On the cross, we see how far 
Our God is willing to go to identify with the oppressed, the poor, the marginalized, and the weak. And he does it all for you and for me. Take that truth into the center of your heart, Christian. Take that beautiful, majestic truth into the center of your heart and it will make you and me live justly as an act of worship. I've asked my brother Tim White to lead us through a short prayer response. So wherever you are, get comfortable and give your attention and ears to our brother Tim. Tim, take it away.